Romans 1 and verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his human nature, was a descendant of David, and who, through the spirit of holiness, was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Last time we were together looking at this uh, section, we were looking at this matter of God's good news, God's announcement. It refers to, uh, in verse 1, Paul says, set apart for the gospel of God. Set apart for God's exciting announcement. And God's exciting announcement, we saw, is about his Son. And last time we were looking uh, at what uh, it, it contains there about who Jesus is, according to human nature of the seed of David. But through his resurrection, declared, appointed to be Son of God with power, no longer Son of God in weakness, where people could reject him, treat him cruelly, but now Son of God with power. This great declaration about Jesus uh, Paul speaks about him in, in, in almost every verse there has some reference to Jesus. And then he says in verse uh, 5, through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. Paul has received grace and apostleship or the grace of apostleship. It's amazing that Paul should ever be allowed to speak to people about Jesus because he had so hated Jesus. He had sinned grievously, and so Paul says, I've received grace, amazing grace. In uh, chapter 26 of the book of Acts, in verse 15, he recounts the story, how Jesus confronted him and said to him, um, he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Now get up and stand on your feet, I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you've seen of me and what I will show you. I'll rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among all those who are sanctified by faith in me. There's Paul turned round receiving grace Meeting with Jesus, Jesus could have pronounced a death sentence. Paul had hounded people to death. He had hated the name of Jesus. Now he sees Jesus in power. And what is the word he receives? Grace. Paul, I'm appointing you as my servant. And I'm appointing you to go to the nations, to open their eyes, turn them from darkness to light. And he's given a commission, grace and apostleship. And uh, he says here, back in Romans 1, verse 5, that this grace and apostleship was for a particular purpose. Now, last time we were together, uh, I was unraveling 
the text here, um, and I hope I didn't confuse you, saying, well, this is a translation. The translators do their best to um, uh, interpret it. Often it is uh, more interpretation than translation, um, and so I was unraveling it a bit. I hope that didn't confuse you. But just to say, obviously, when Paul was writing this, he was not writing in English. Everyone's got their weak point. That was Paul's. He didn't know English. For the simple reason English hadn't yet been invented. And so he is speaking in Greek, writing in Greek, and what we have here is a translation. No translation is perfect. Often the translator will bring their own interpretation into it just to, to try and convey meaning and so on. Obviously, translations, the NIV is perfectly reliable, but it is just a translation. And here in verse Five, through him and for his namesake we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. If we were to translate it word for word, it would say something like this. Through him we receive grace and apostleship for the obedience of faith in all the nations for the sake of his name. For the obedience of faith in all the nations for the sake of his name. So Paul's apostleship has got three dimensions to it. It's for the obedience of faith. Secondly, it's in all the nations. And thirdly, it's for the sake of his name. They are not the three points of this message this morning because we're just going to look at the first one of those. <laughs> for the obedience of faith. That's, the, that's the, the, the thrust that Paul puts first of the commission has been given this grace and apostleship from through Jesus he has received this commission for the obedience of faith. But before we look at that, we need to see the basic foundation that undergirds it. We'll look at what it means in just a moment, but we do need to see this first. Because verse 4 works towards a climax. And we haven't really finished with verse 4 yet. Verse 4 works towards a climax. And the climax of verse 4 is Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is God's great announcement, God's exciting announcement. It's about his son. All of that is spelt out. We're looking at it last time, but it works towards this climax. Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's not just a turn of phrase. It's not just a cliche. It is a basic statement of faith. It is our basic statement of faith to say Jesus is Lord. In uh, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, Paul says that, 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 3, he says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, obviously anyone can just say the words, but no one can say it meaning it. No one can declare Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. This is our basic conviction. Now, what do we mean when we say that? What we're saying is, he's God, and he has all authority, and most particularly, he has all authority over my life. Jesus is Lord. That's a statement of faith, a statement of commitment, as well as a statement of what we believe about the person of Christ. He's God. 
Do you remember when Thomas, one of the twelve, had had such difficulty believing the reports that he was hearing, he just couldn't get his head round it, that the Jesus who he had heard had been killed, dying on the cross, buried, people are saying he's alive again. Couldn't get his head round it, and he said, "I, I won't believe it. And then Jesus confronts him. Jesus appears, and Jesus is there. Says Thomas, and he beckons Thomas individually. Here are my hands. There's my side. And Thomas falls down and says, My Lord and my God. That one sight of Jesus dispelled all his doubts and changed his life. My Lord and my God. It's a personal commitment. When we say, My Lord and my God, we are saying, He reigns in my life. Now, What Paul says about him is he is Jesus Christ our Lord. He is the Saviour, he is the Messiah, and he is my Lord. Some people speak about Jesus as if he's got a kind of split personality, a dual personality. He's Saviour on the one hand, and Lord on the other. As if these are two different aspects of his personality, and you can, if you like, some people seem to think, opt for one or the other or both. And so there used to be a teaching, you don't hear it nowadays, but even though you don't hear the teaching, people still live as if it's true, that you receive Jesus as Saviour, and then at a certain time, you then receive him as Lord. As if he's got a split personality, you can opt for one bit, or the other, or both. Jesus is Lord. The Saviour is the Lord. You don't take your pick. He forgives sin, Saviour. He has all authority, Lord. He can forgive sin because he has authority. He forgives sin because he is Lord. Because on the cross, he dealt with our sin, taking our guilt away, but with authority, dealing with the one who led us into sin, dealing with Satan. He is Saviour because he is Lord. So, when we receive him as Saviour, We're handing over the title deeds. When we receive him as saviour, we're giving him the keys. We're saying, now I am totally yours. That's how it was for Paul, wasn't it? He'd been uh, opposing Jesus there on the Damascus road. Jesus appears to him and he says, Lord, who are you, Lord? And then the Lord gives him a commission. His life, he's handed over the keys handing over the title deeds. If we want him to save us, he saves us as Lord. And it is impossible to receive him as Saviour and not receive him as Lord. So the person who receives Christ for forgiveness of sins but is not prepared to submit to him, are they saved? Well, the Bible's got no answer to that one, really, because it's not a biblical category. He is Lord. The problem is, in our Western society at the present time, there is a real resistance to commitment. We see it all the time. That's why marriages break down. That's why family life disintegrates, because people are resistant to the concept of commitment. And it strays into church life. To get people to commit faithfully to doing things. You say, well, I'll do it for a while, or I'll do it when I'm available, but to commit. Now, people are wary of commitment. Now, if we want to be saved, 
we commit our lives. Everything. Remember the story Jesus told about a man who finds buried treasure in a field. And he, it says, Jesus said he sells all he's got to buy that field. Or oh, the pearl of great price, the merchant who found, finds this incredibly valuable pearl. He sells all he's got to buy that pearl. And it's like we come before God and he, we, we, we give everything. And he says, you know, we can say, well, here's, here are the keys to my car. <clears throat> Hand it over. And he says, what about the door key to your house? That? Okay. Uh, what about your family? What about, what about, what about? Everything, he's Lord. Everything, he is Lord. We want him to be our saviour. He's Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's Paul's understanding of it. That's the commitment Paul has made, which is why Paul begins this letter, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. Not a reluctant slave, we saw when we looked at that, but a slave who loves Jesus and says, I don't want to go free. I'm thrilled that I can belong to Jesus. Lock, stock and barrel, it's all yours, Jesus. And that explains why Paul is saying what he's saying here, but it also explains Paul's life. Why he lived as he did, because he's seen Jesus Christ, our Lord. Where's the evidence? How does it show that he is your Lord? How does it show that he's in charge of everything? That you've handed over everything. The title deeds, everything is his. Your free time, your money, your job, your possessions, your future. He's Lord. Heard that about fear of the future. What does this year bring? We hand our future over. He's Lord. Our past, our present, our future. He's the Lord. Where's the evidence? <laughs> Does it show that he's Lord? That we've given it to him? Is there a new willingness to serve? A new willingness to give? He's Lord. Paul says, slave of Christ Jesus. That's his status. We're frightened of commitment. We're frightened of handing over. And so there's always a struggle to get people to serve and kind of just say thank you to people. Do you know, you know if, if you arrived here 25 to 11, it might surprise you to know there are people here from, what, 9 o'clock, people serving, the musicians, people who are on the PA desk, thanks, Tom, people who welcome you at the door, people who have been downstairs getting stuff ready for coffee. They don't just do it because they felt like it. They're serving. It's evidence. They're, they're committed. Jesus is Lord. That's the basic foundation. And it's because God has made this exciting announcement about Jesus and he's the Lord, that then leads on to what Paul is going to say. Through him we receive grace and apostleship for the obedience of faith among all the nations for the sake of his name. The obedience of faith. We can only understand that if we understand what we've just seen, that Jesus Christ is Lord. But now what does it mean, the obedience of faith? The NIV, helpfully or unhelpfully, 
explains it. The obedience that comes from faith. But that's an explanation, not a translation. The words actually say the obedience of faith, which is kind of ambiguous. Does it mean faith as an act of obedience or obedience as an act of faith? And you might say, sorry, don't see the difference. Well, I'm about to explain that to you. But it puts the emphasis in different places. Is it faith as an act of obedience? In other words, the faith, faith that comes as a result of obeying, or is it obedience as an act of faith? Because I believe, I obey. NIV settles on that second one, the obedience that comes from faith. But it is ambiguous. So let's look at it as the obedience that comes from faith. Obedience as an act of faith. And when there's an ambiguity, incidentally, when it could mean either, probably that is intentional. In other words, it means both. And we don't have to isolate one or the other, they both go together. So if you don't see the difference between them, that's fine, because both are true. But the obedience that comes from faith, our basic problem, before we become a Christian, our basic problem is disobedience. It is habitual, and it is impossible for us to get out of that. So in verse uh, 18 here, in chapter 1, Paul says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. That's, that's our basic problem, suppressing the truth and disobeying godlessness and wickedness. That is sin. This disobedience, that is the very nature of sin. And it is instinctive. We can't change that. And so, in chapter 8, which we'll probably get to the year after next, <laughs> chapter 8 uh, and verse 7, Paul says, the sinful mind, then in other words, the, the mind of the person who has not yet become a Christian, the person who is not yet born again, the sinful mind is hostile to God, it doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. It is instinctive to disobey. We cannot fully obey. We can maybe obey some things, but we cannot fully obey. And indeed, if we try, that leads to despair. And that's what Paul outlines in chapter 7, a chapter that has confused many people who lift the chapter right out of its context. They forget what it says in chapter 6, they ignore what it says in chapter 8, just look at chapter 7, and then tragically say that describes a Christian. And so there Paul speaks about despair. He says, I have the desire to do what's good, but I can't carry it out, verse 18. What I do is not the good I want to do, no, the evil I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. And he says, what a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body of death. That's the person who is not yet regenerate. They're trying to obey, and they can't. For, the, for those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. That is not the Christian. If that's what it is, means to be a Christian, this is not good news. In other words, the Christian message is, you want to be really miserable, you want to be driven to despair, become a Christian. 
because suddenly you're going to see a standard to live up to and you won't be able to and you're going to be forever saying, what a wretched person I am. That's not the gospel. Paul has said at the end of the previous chapter, you, verse 22, you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness, not despair, holiness. And the result is eternal life and so on. And chapter 8 then spells that out. But if we try unregenerate nature, instinctively hostile to God, we can't do it. Now, Wendy was sharing about her resistance to New Year and uh, resolutions and stuff. That, in the paper this week, Mind, the mental health charity, apparently have urged people not to make New Year resolutions. They say that uh, these resolutions... Uh, create a negative self-image and lead to feelings of hopelessness, low self-esteem and even mild depression. New Year's resolutions can sometimes focus on our problems and insecurities, they say. We chastise ourselves for our perceived shortcomings, set unrealistic goals to change our behaviour. It's not surprising that when we fail to keep resolutions, we end up feeling worse than when we started. They are virtually quoting Romans chapter 7. If we try to be better, we end up feeling worse. That's human nature. Their advice is take some exercise, go green, and give back to your community. Well, the Bible has some other solutions. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a basic problem of disobedience and we cannot obey. And the good news is righteousness that comes by faith. Verse 17 of chapter 1, in the gospel, in the good news, in God's announcement, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness, and what does righteousness mean? Obeying God. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The gospel offers us justification through faith. We believe that Jesus, my substitute, was punished in my place. My debt is dealt with. My guilt is erased. And his righteousness is given to me. I am justified by believing in him. That is the gospel. And righteousness, uh, justification by faith, then leads to living by faith. The righteous will live by faith. And so we believe God. And then our obedience comes out of believing God. We are believing that we are free. Free from the slavery of sin. Free from the one who always led us astray, who dominated us, who brought us even to despair. We are free from his authority. We are free to be slaves of God. That's the great message of this letter. So, obedience then comes out of faith. It's a result of believing something. We believe in Jesus. We believe that he's the Lord. And so, we face temptation. Temptation that once we couldn't conquer. And we can say the temptation is as strong as ever it was, I am as weak as ever I was. There's the temptation. There am I. 
Previously, I was bound to give in to it. I couldn't resist. But now I believe something. I believe in Jesus. I believe that he's the Son of God with power and that he is my Lord. And I am subject to him. So, because this glorious Lord has given me his spirit, I believe that. And so I say no. Through faith in him, I say no. That was stronger than me, but it's not stronger than him. And I'm in him. His spirit is in me. I believe it. So by faith, I say no to sin. We're free to obey. And we obey by faith. We're not into empty legalism. We're not into just living by the rules, doing as we're told. It's not about that. It's not about trying to live by a certain standard just to kind of appear respectable. It's faith. We're believing in Jesus and we live by faith. The obedience that comes from faith. So much conventional Christianity is just conventional respectability. Kind of legalism. Where we don't know why we're doing what we're doing, but we're just doing it. And so, you know, I've said before, I hope we're not here today just because it's Sunday. You might say, I can't think of any other reason for being here. Well, then feel free to leave. (laughs) Because it's not much of a reason for being here. Hopefully we're here because we believe something. It's a matter of faith. We believe in Jesus. We believe he's worth worshipping. We believe in the church. We believe what the Bible says. We do what we do because of what we believe. We don't do what we do just because it's conventional. We don't do what we do because it's expected of us or because it's respectable. We don't do it for those reasons. It's a matter of faith. Otherwise, it's empty and it is skin deep and powerless and it doesn't deal with sin. But no, Paul's great message is obedience that is a result of believing something, that we believe in Jesus. Now, legalism and faith can both appear to produce the same thing. But it's the spirit of it that is so different. When people are doing what they're doing because they believe something, the spirit of that is so different from people who are just doing it because they've been told to. They don't know why, but it's the thing to do. No, we believe. And when we do what we do... I mean, take an example, if you'll forgive me using this as an example. Take the example of our Friday night prayer meeting. We can be there because it's on the programme, we're church members, we should be there. And so we come, and we're there in the prayer meeting, our watch is very visible, keep looking at it, oh dear me, it's only half an hour, it seemed like an hour. And, and so we're there, resenting it, it's on a Friday night, and I don't like it on Friday night, where there's resentment, we're tired, we're clock watching, we're supposed to be there. But we're there, There's the person who's there with faith. They are there because they believe God's house is a house of prayer. They're believing something. They're believing God answers prayer. Jesus has said, where two or three of you agree on anything concerning the kingdom, it will be yours. So we believe something. 
Friday evening, if it was midnight on Friday, we'd be there. If it was, do you know, there was a time, where, soon after I first came here, when the leader, we had a leadership team, and we started six o'clock in the morning prayer meetings, just for the leadership team. It appalls me now, but we did it. And people, we just gathered, six o'clock in the morning, we were there. It doesn't matter what time, when you believe in prayer, when you believe in the God who answers prayer. So you can get two different groups of people in the prayer meeting. Those who are there because, well, you're supposed to be. Those who are there because they're believing something. In difficult times, when those who just feel they ought to be there don't come, can I tell you something? We have a great prayer meeting. (laughs) Only maybe you wouldn't know about it. (laughs) But when people want to pray, and it's people now agreed with each other, they're not looking at their watches, they're there seeking God. That's where you know you're obtaining promises. That's where you know you're encountering God. It can look the same, but the spirit is so different. And Paul's speaking here about obedience that comes from faith. What are we believing? What do we believe about Jesus, the Son of God with power? What do we believe about his purpose? I will build my church. We're not interested in just doing Christian activities here and there. No, we believe in the church. We believe in commitment to the church. We believe the church is a house of prayer for all nations. We're part of it. We believe in serving one another. We're not looking for profile. We're looking to wash one another's feet. We believe in Jesus. And when we believe that, then our obedience comes out of that and it's full of life. It's got faith in it. So different from just respectability from just conforming. So that's one thing that Paul is speaking about here and it is his theme, comes back to it right at the, in the final verses of this letter. He holds the theme in his mind miraculously right through all the chapters and comes back to it in chapter 16. He says, so that all nations might believe and obey him. That's his great heart, that people believe and obey, the obedience that comes out of faith. But it can also mean the other the faith that comes from obedience or faith as an act of obedience. Now, what do we mean by that? Again, to start from the same point, the issue is disobedience and unbelief is disobedience. Unbelief is sin. How did the whole story begin? Go back to Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, How did sin come into the world? What was the first sin? Unbelief. When the devil said, you won't surely die. God said, in the day you eat of that tree, you will die. The devil says, no, you won't die. And they believe a lie. Unbelief, but refusing to believe God, the first sin. Unbelief is sin. All sin comes from that denying what God says and choosing an alternative. In Hebrews chapter 3, the writer to the Hebrews makes the same point, looking at the history of Israel when they came out of Egypt in Hebrews 3 and verse 18. He says, To whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. They disobeyed. In what way did they disobey? Unbelief. Unbelief is disobedience. Unbelief is sin. 
belief of faith is a command. Have you ever realised that? We are commanded to believe God. It's not an option. There's a little phrase that people use so glibly, I haven't got faith for that. It's a, it sounds kind of spiritual. After all, the first point we've made is obedience that comes out of faith. And so we can say, well, I don't have faith for that. And then it lets us off the hook. We don't have to do it because what we want is the obedience that comes from faith. If I haven't got faith, then I don't have to obey. And uh, in some cases, that is right. But it can also be such a huge cop-out. I haven't got faith for that. And if we say that for everything that stretches faith or that is difficult, then we have an easy life. I haven't got faith for that. I haven't got faith to, to pray. I haven't got faith for, this. I have faith for that. I haven't got faith for giving. Well, if you haven't got faith for giving, don't give. Oh, that's good. No, actually, we're commanded to believe. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 23. John says, this is his command, note the word, this is his command to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. This is his command to believe. Jesus, one day, sees, as he's going to the temple, he sees a fig tree that looked like it should be, have fruit, but it didn't have any, and he cursed it. And next time they walk by, that fig tree is dead, and the disciples express astonishment. The fig tree that you cursed has died. And remember what Jesus said? Have faith in God. There's a command. Have faith in God. It's a command. Faith, then, is not an option. Faith is obedience. Obedient faith. Believing God is obeying him. If we want to obey him, we believe him. When Jesus sees a man with a withered arm, do you remember what Jesus said to him? Stretch out your hand. What was required? Faith or obedience? Well, both. To obey that command, that is faith. Stretch out your hand. You can't stretch it out. The command to believe. Believing and obeying. If you believe, you do something. Faith is not passive because faith is obeying God. And then it leads to actions. Hence, what James says in James chapter 2, verse 14. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. He says, Show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by what I do. Faith without deeds is useless. Because faith is not just something in our minds, it's kind of abstract. Faith is obeying God, and we can't opt out into a kind of lazy faith. Oh, I haven't got faith for that. Opting out when it's hard, opting out when it will create difficulties. Faith is a simple matter of obedience. And now think of some of the things that Jesus has said. 
In Matthew chapter 10, we read of him sending out the 12, and he says to them, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. He doesn't say, heal the sick if you've got faith for that. He doesn't say, raise the dead if you've got faith for that. He says, heal the sick, raise the dead. It's a command. And we can hear those things and we say, oh, I haven't got faith for that. But faith is commanded. Why is the church in this country in decline according to statistics? Why is the church in this country a kind of sick joke? Is it not because we have failed to realise that Jesus Christ is Lord? Is it not because we have failed to see he has been appointed Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead and he is Lord and now we are commanded? It's not an option. He's our Saviour and Lord. We believe him. To not believe him is an insult to him. And he says, go and do these things. We, if the church in this country believe him to be the, believed him to be the Lord and started obeying him by believing him, this country would be in a different condition right now. We have come, Paul's contention is, we have come into a new age. Not the age of the flesh, but the age of the spirit. We've come into a realm of the Spirit where the Spirit of the risen Lord Jesus Christ is in us. And he has said, you will do greater works than I've been doing because I'm going to the Father. He is Son of God with power. And he has put his Spirit in his church. And what happens is his church just says, oh, I haven't got faith for that. Wake up, church and see what we've come into. That's why Paul prays, we were looking at it last time, uh, for the Ephesians, I'm praying that God would open the eyes of your heart so you would see, see the hope that you've come into, the power that is at work in us, the power that God exerted when he raised his son from the dead. That's what we've come into, and we're commanded, believe it. Believe it. Yes, there'll be times, of course, when we we know God is not going to do such and such, so we don't have faith for it. That is legitimate, but we don't make that a general rule. And I think we have generalised that into inactivity. That becomes our reason for not doing things. I don't have faith for it. And God says, have faith in God. Have faith. Now, preach the gospel. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cast out demons. This is our commission. They're not options for another day and we'll just go on believing. I believe he's my saviour. No, he's saviour and Lord. And so we hand over the title deeds and say my life is now at your disposal because you have bought me. By your death on the cross for me, I'm yours. Every part of my life. Everything, all goes into your hands, the title deeds, the keys to everything, it's yours. Now what do you want me to do? And he says, preach the gospel. Heal the sick, cast out demons. 
and all the other stuff that he says. And the wonderful thing is, because this is the, not law, but grace, when he commands us to do something, his spirit is right there to enable us to do it. It's not frustration. It's not like the New Year's resolution, I'm going to lose weight this year, and you end up the year fa fatter than you were at the start. It's not that kind of thing. It's commands from God. Sorry, James, I saw you react to that one, but I really was not looking in your direction. No, I must have been, because I just saw you react. It's not, not just giving us New Year's resolutions where we know we're going to fail, but it's him commanding us to do something because his power is at work in us to enable us to do it. But we've got to believe him. And believing is not optional. It's what we've come to. He's the Lord. Jesus Christ, our Lord. The fact that Jesus is Lord leads to a radical life transformation. It, we don't carry on as we did before, but we're now just believing something different. Everything change it, changes. Without the statement that Jesus is Lord, Christianity collapses. Christianity becomes just some sort of empty philosophy, but no, he's the Lord. That's why the church is still alive and active in the year 2009. How has the church persisted? Because he's the Lord. And why will the church persist? Because he's the Lord. And he is waiting for people who will believe that he's the Lord. And who will start moving on that conviction. Our life is to be an outworking of what we believe. And if we believe that he is who the Bible says he is, then really just about anything can happen. Obedience that comes from faith. Yeah, we're not doing it just as an empty convention. We're just living up to, to, to the rules of the, of the club. No, it's obedience that comes from faith. But it's faith that's an act of, of, of obedience. Faith is not optional. Faith is commanded. And God says, believe me and do this. Believe me. Believe me. And it's time to wake up. If we're going to make any resolutions this year, let's resolve this. Jesus is Lord. That's a good resolution. Jesus is Lord. And believing that is going to change your life. Believing that will transform the life of this church. Believing that changes our future. All our plans, all our ambitions, handed over to him, our our self-image, our reputation, whatever. He's the Lord. Now I'm going to do what he says.